Uh, this is our last message in our Colossians series, and uh, if you guys can believe it or not, we began this on June 3rd. Four chapters of Paul's letter took us a lot of time. It's 2019. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's a very crazy thing. I remember when it was the year 2000. Remember Y2K? Uh, or maybe some of you weren't even born yet or something. But um, I was working in uh, investment management at the time, and people were freaking out. Uh, as like what's going to happen with our computer systems and all this stuff and they had these big consulting firms coming in and all this kind of stuff and what I wish happened didn't happen I'm I was still working um, but uh, people were like really really freaking out back then right and they just weren't sure what was going to happen and all as Christians you know we, we are influenced by things that happen in the world but they don't dictate uh, our future they don't freak us out necessarily we, we have the ability to look beyond, I hope, that we have the ability to look beyond what's happening right before us and to remain steady in following Jesus Christ. Um, these last four verses that we're going to look at in Paul's letter to the Colossians here, uh, it's something that we can carry into future. And Paul's intent of this letter was to strengthen the churches, was to strengthen the followers of Jesus, for the church to experience the fullness in Jesus Christ, to live in complete freedom in Jesus Christ. Um, and as we've talked about before, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul covers a lot of basic Christian doctrine. He's, he's laying the groundwork for the foundations of Christian doctrine. He then goes on in chapters 3 and 4 just to how to practically follow these instructions in chapters 1 and 2. And then he ends this letter with this call to faithfulness with some really personalized greetings, and we'll take a look here at verse 15. It reads, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. One of the interesting things about Paul's letter and greetings is that it's addressed to a group of people that he's actually never met. He's not writing to these longtime friends that he's trying to catch up to. It's people that he doesn't know personally. He only knows them through a follower of Jesus named Epaphras. And Epaphras has been updating him as to what's been happening. Epaphras was uh, very instrumental in bringing the church to Colossae and visited Paul while Paul was in prison. And so this empathy that Paul developed, this care and love that Paul developed, was kind of through Epaphras. And they were close friends, but he didn't know these other people in Colossae. And if you look back to chapter 2, verse 1, it reads this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So he's, he doesn't know these people. Doesn't know them personally. But he does have empathy for them. He does have care, this deep concern and we may be wondering why. why. Why would somebody that hasn't seen this person face-to-face -face care? Um, I, I think a lot of it has to do with like even Teen Challenge being here. We, we don't know any of them, but yet there is a deep care for those in our community um, to refer them to people like Teen Challenge. Teen Challenge, actually, uh, I've had a long history with them because I, I work a lot with sex-trafficked girls. And so a lot of these sex trafficked girls, we refer them to Teen Challenge to get some of the help that they can provide there. And a lot of them are doing really well now. Um, Billy, who is our outreach director, is uh, using Teen Challenge as a resource uh, to refer people to, and a lot of people are getting help through them. And so um, this kind of deep concern, this deep care, extends to people simply because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. 
that we, we, we love one another, that there's this in, innate love that we have for one another. And I don't think it was all that different for Paul. Paul, who didn't know these people, but it's just stemmed out of being a brother in Christ. And so Paul also knew how difficult it was to be a Christian in this world, how difficult it was that this is just a stopping ground for us because we are people in exile. This is, isn't our home. We're home's uh, destination later, um, but it's, this is not it. This is a stopping ground for us. And while we're here, we are to be imitators of Jesus Christ to a world that has rejected him. So perhaps Paul, as he's getting older, who has lived a life modeled after Jesus Christ, knew how challenging it was to live in this world but not be of the world. And Paul was this really well-educated guy, uh, educated in Jerusalem under a guy named Gamaliel, had the best education. He was a very well-traveled guy who traveled all over the, the known world at the time, very well-experienced in life as a Christ follower, and after all that, after having everything that you can think of in terms of an education and resources and being well-traveled and all these things and a lot of friends, where do we find him in our story? He's in prison. So at this point of his life, he's this older guy. And he knew what it was like to be spiritually misled. Because throughout his life, until the road to Damascus, he was not for Christians. He wanted to persecute Christians. He gave the thumbs up for Stephen to be stoned to death. He was out there wanting to persecute Christians and imprison them and separate families and do things that a loving person wouldn't do to other people. And so now he finds himself here that he was misled and now he's set free and he, does, he wants the same for other people. That perhaps we're in bondage in some sort of way and he wants us set free. So he continues this work from his jail cell. He doesn't let prison stop him from continuing the work of ministry. He doesn't let his age stop him. He doesn't let his ailments, his sicknesses that Paul, Dr. Dr. Luke was taking care of Paul, he doesn't let those things stop him. And that he was busy praying for all these people, all these churches. He was busy writing to people like Philemon, to Titus, to Timothy, and writing to churches like Colossae and Corinth. And so he's busy still. That He knew that God wasn't done with him yet. And that's a message that I'd love for you to take away with you in, in that if you feel in any way that maybe, you know, God can't use me or God's done with me, I, I have this past or I have this history, I'm too old, I'm too sick, I'm too whatever, God's not done with you. If he can use a sickly, elderly, jailed man to do such an incredible work throughout the church, it's not about Paul. It's about what God does. And God can do amazing things through you. Now going into verse 16, it reads this, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul gives this greeting to those in Laodicea in verse 15. Laodicea is about 10 miles northwest of Colossae. It's in modern-day Turkey. I'd love to take our church there at some point. I haven't been there in a, in a while, but it would be a really, really great trip to trace the steps of Paul and go to all these sites, which is essentially Colossae's amount of dirt, so there's nothing there. But Laodicea is pretty cool because you can actually see the, the piping from Hierapolis with the warm wa waters from Pamuk 
Pamukale, I think that's how you pronounce it, and the cold waters and then all the calcium deposits are in those pipes because you know when he says you're lukewarm water, I'll spit you out, all that stuff, that stuff's there. Let's go, like I'm ready to go, let's go. But Paul wants this letter to be read to those Colossians, uh, the, 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 the Laodicean letter to be read to the Colossians, and he wants the Colossian letter read to the Laodiceans, but the thing is, is we don't have that Laodicean letter. We, we just don't have record of it. it. It was written according to Paul, according to the Bible, but we just don't have it in our possession, so there's nothing for us to look at. But we'll notice in all of this that Paul does not do ministry by himself. He needed the help of a lot of people, and we've been looking at this for the past several weeks And when we looked at verse 7 of chapter 4, that we looked at Tychicus, and we looked at Onesimus in verse 9, and Aristarchus in Mark in verse 10, Justice in verse 11, Epaphras in verse 12, Luke and Demas in verse 14, and there are actually many, many more, because in verse 15, Paul brings up this entire church in Laodicea, and he brings up Nympha. Now, the work of the gospel is actually credited to all the nameless people like those in Laodicea, like us. To move the gospel forward, God designed it so that people like Paul don't do it alone, that we all need each other in order to do God's work, that God is using all of us. And there's one person that's named in verse 15. It's this lady named Nympha. She hosted a church in her home, the only one identified by name here. And she had a really significant part in the church as she hosted the church inside of her home. But you'll notice that that entire church that met in her home are made up of unnamed people who did the work of God, who proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout Colossae. And we can liken people like Nympha to Mark's mother, who we found in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, who who welcomed the church in her house. You remember when Peter was in prison, he got out of prison, and the first place he goes to is Mark's mother's home because he knows the church is there. And so that's where they go. And she welcomed people into her home, just very hospitable, very generous ladies who made it possible for the church to grow and to gather together for fellowship and worship and the breaking of bread, the teaching, the, 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 the prayers. And so these ladies were very, very instrumental in the church. Ladies like Lydia, who we find in Acts chapter 16, so generous, so hospitable to the church. And it's not just ladies, although it's mostly ladies mentioned in the Bible, but guys are in there too. We hear of Gaius. Gaius is in Romans chapter 16. We hear of couples, Priscilla and Aquila in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, who helped move the church forward. So many who were so generous with their resources and opened their homes for the kingdom of God, just like many of you are doing this today. We thank all the dozen or so of you who open your homes up to small groups in your homes. And thank you for how you've been so generous to the church, the the many of you who are here. As so many of you already know, we are closing on this property on January 15th. Um, How that happened is actually quite miraculous because um, we're actually buying something in the Bay Area. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy thing, right? Um, how many churches do you hear of just buy some church? Like, I, don't, I know of one in the last 20 years of ministry that I've been here that has bought a church in Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco if it wasn't just given to them. Like I, I, I have friends, their churches were given to them. 
but in terms of an actual purchase, I actually only know of one. And to think of how God has blessed us with your generosity and your resources to support our church, that's just an incredible thing to me. And meeting in homes was a really significant part of the church, which is why home groups are really important to our church, that the church met in homes for some really practical reasons. One of the reasons was that gatherings um, were too small to meet in a larger space, so they met in homes. Or you can go the other way, where the gatherings were, would just be too large, so they split into many homes so that the larger church can meet in, in homes and all the church can meet to accommodate all the people. Now, there are some people who come up with this entire ecclesiology of what the church should be based off of passages like this, and they, they come to the conclusion of saying, like, well, churches should be home churches. They should all meet in homes. And the way that church is being done today is wrong in being buy, and buying property and all this stuff. That's, that's really wrong. Um, obviously, you know where I stand on this because um, we're closing on this property on the 15th, so, like, it's obvious. But what Paul is writing here is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. He's not telling churches this is how it's done. He's just describing to you what, what was happening in the church in Colossae. Now, the point isn't where people are meeting for church. The point is, why are people meeting for church? The point is the why. And they met for communion. They met for prayer. They met for fellowship. They met for study. They met for those things that churches do. Now, there is a place for small groups, and there is a place for large group as we get together as a church. There, there are things that we can do as a larger group that we can't do as a smaller group. For example, having Teen Challenge with us, because they probably don't want to go to every single home that we have and take several months to do that. That we can have them here, and then we can provide the services that we provide and the outreach that we provide to our homeless community, feeding them every Sunday morning or arranging to reach out to them every Friday night or Saturday night. There are things that we do as a large group that smaller groups aren't able to do, and there are things that smaller groups are able to do that large groups can't, like building deeper, richer, more intimate relationships with one another. It's hard to do that in a larger setting. So those things are really valuable in that we need both. We need all of it. We need ways to be able to reach different people in different ways. And just another point to that we, we need each other in the kingdom of God, as Paul needed all these people and all these different ways of doing church. Another thing that I kind of feel is being made a big deal about by the church, and sometimes I feel it's misplaced, is this emphasis on leaders and this emphasis on leadership. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe those things are important, but you don't ever hear of conferences of how to be a better follower, like, right? It's always how to be a better leader. How do you increase your leadership skills? And then there's always books on like leadership books, but you don't have books on following. That doesn't happen. But, but here's the thing. There is no Apostle Paul without all those churches, right? It's the people who make up the churches, those Colossians. There is no Apostle Paul with the many people that we just mentioned from Tychicus all the way down to Nympha and the people that hosted churches in their home 
who ministered to him in prison, who gave generously to his ministries without someone like Luke taking care of his medical needs. And so people are always looking at leaders of the church, and so they look at elders or pastors or ministry staff. But there are no church leaders without the many who make up the church. The most significant part of the church is you. You are the most significant part of the church. It's the body of Christ together that makes up the significance of the church. It's not a particular person who's the most important in the church, unless it's Jesus. That's the only one. But other than that, that's not the case. So let's start a followers conference or write a followers book or something like that. But verse 17, it says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And so Paul specifically points out Archippus here, urging him to live a life of continued commitment to the ministry. And it's the only place other than Philemon where Archippus is mentioned by name. We don't know anything else about him aside from what is written about him in those two places. Now, what did he do? We don't know. It's not written. We were not told what he did for ministry. We don't know what he did. But whatever ministry he did do, Paul is telling him, do that in faithfulness in the Lord. That whatever ministry you receive from the Lord, fulfill that ministry faithfully. So what is Paul getting at here? Paul was pointing to Archippus' faithfulness, and he's not pointing to what a lot of us tend to point to, giftedness. Why was Archippus specifically mentioned when we just talked about how it's everyone else that builds the church, not a particular person? And I think this is why. It's because Archippus is each one of us. Each one of us is an Archippus. If Pastor Nate received this letter from the Apostle Paul that told him, see that you, Nate, fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord, would that then mean for the rest of us that we're off the hook of doing any ministry? that we've received from the Lord. It doesn't, right? I mean, we would all hope that it would let us off the hook and we can just go do whatever we want and only Nate has to do ministry. That would be really great. But it's not. That's not what happens. If anything, it's this encouragement for the rest of us to do the same thing that was written to Nate. It's a call to faithfulness, which, which people have a really, really hard time with, which is why we have um, performance reviews. Right? That's why you get a performance review at church. Or, well, I do get a performance review at church. But you get it at work. And, and it's because people want to look at what you produce. They want to look at what you're good at or what you can improve upon or whatever. Paul doesn't do that. Paul is not looking at giftedness. He's looking at faithfulness. While we tend to look at what people produce rather than who they are. We tend to look at the fruit of somebody's production rather than their character in work environments. What did Jesus say in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? What did he say there? Well done, good and gifted servant. Does he say that? He doesn't say that. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus doesn't say, like, well, you're, you're so gifted at administration, I'm going to give you more stuff. It's something that is of character, something internal. 
Paul doesn't even mention giftedness at all in all of Colossians, but he does mention faithfulness throughout it. He peppers it through there. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. You jump to verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is faithful. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Then you jump to chapter 4, verse 7, Tychicus. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Verse 9, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Giftedness is never pointed out by Paul, but faithfulness, that is pointed out numerous times. We tend to, in our American Western work ethic, we tend to attach success to giftedness. And so we start looking at metrics. We start looking at measurements, things that are tangible that tell us we raised from $1 to $10. We, did, we grew this from five people to 20 people. We did this to that. Paul doesn't do that. Paul never mentions a number here. Paul encourages us to look at faithfulness. He's encouraging us to look at who are we? And yes, we can measure that, but it's kind of a little harder to measure. It's not like a 1 to 10 scale. It's not as linear. But you can measure your faithfulness. You know if you grew in it, right? You, you can know that. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We aren't to be found successful, gifted. We're to be found faithful. And the source of our faithfulness is in the Lord. You look at verse 17 again. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Ministry is a received work. It's not an assumed work. It's not something that we assume. It's not something that we necessarily choose or designate as a vocation. No matter how qualified or equipped we can be for it, if it's not something that we have received as a gift from God, it's not something that we will be able to give away as a gift from God. Because we can't give away what we haven't received. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, when he wrote this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. See, we can't get from the Lord what we never received from him. So no matter what schemes or plans or agendas that we have, we can't claim them to be God's plans or agendas or schemes when they aren't. What have we been entrusted with from God? Part of the problem that the church struggles with is that people, churches, are assuming their places and they're making decisions when they didn't receive that from God. So you create all these programs, you create all these whatever it may be, and it wasn't from God. And so we have pastors, ministers who assume ministry rather than receiving ministry from God or people who attempt to give something that they haven't received themselves. So for example, how can one deliver the grace of God if you've never received the grace of God? How can someone ever offer God's salvation if you've never received God's salvation? 
Because we're not saved by service in the ministry. We're not saved by attendance in church. We are saved by faith in Jesus' work and where he has justified us. He sanctifies us. So what is each of us doing? Because we're to do something. God didn't just place us here to do nothing. So what is that something? Now let's not remove giftedness entirely because we are told to serve God to the best of our ability and if we are told to serve God with the best of our ability then we should put our best into it in terms of growing and serving and doing everything that we can to improve upon what we're doing that that's a good thing but more importantly are we faithful in fulfilling our received ministry in the Lord because apart from the Lord we're just serving in vain. Apart from the Lord amounts to nothing. That We must serve in the Lord. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Just as our brother shared earlier today. I've been, uh, just as a side note, I've just been kind of uh, enjoying this morning um, seeing the Holy Spirit work. Because I, I didn't coordinate with Teen Challenge at all about this message, about their song selection, and to hear them sing about freedom, and to hear that verse come out that was in my sermon, and this song that they're going to end with, Amazing Grace, where Paul ends with his grace be with you. Like, I couldn't arrange that. And when we started this in June 3rd, to think that January 6th, I mean, we didn't even book Teen Challenge until just a few weeks ago. Billy booked it, and Billy's not even here. Thank you, Billy. <laughs> he, went, he went ice fishing in Minnesota. <laughs> he wanted to find his Viking ways or something. But like how all this stuff is working out is just like amazing how God works. I mean, if you don't believe that God is dynamic and is alive and is working in things, I mean, really? From June 3rd to January 6th and just to have this particular moment to be talking about this stuff that we're all in agreement on, like that's nuts. That's crazy. Verse 17. We are to be fulfilling the ministry. We are to do ministry God's way, to finish it God's way, to finish that race, to complete it, to stay faithful at the work we have received, regardless of how short that race is or long that race is. Now, we have to keep in mind that you as the worker is who is important in God's eyes. It is not what you are doing. It is who you are. That God loves you so much more than what you can ever possibly produce, that you can possibly do. That it's your faithfulness, what's happening in you that he cares about so much more than what you can possibly do for the kingdom or do for somebody else. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
God's work will continue with or without you and me. It's not the product that we're creating that he's after. But there is only one you, and he wants that. He wants you because he loves you so deeply. He cares for you so deeply. What you do or will do is not nearly as valuable as who you are and who you will be. That is the most beautiful thing to God. It's all God's work. It's not you and me. So if it's all God's work, then it should be done God's way. You and I have been given this honor, this dignity to participate in God's work, but we're not to get all caught up in the work as much as getting caught up in who we are, how faithful we are. Now verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now this writing with my own hand, it wasn't that Paul wrote this whole letter by his own hand. He had a scribe do that. It was customary for a scribe to write the letter as he's orating this letter out and it's being signed. Now this signature, this sign, this writing my own hand is a way for Paul to show authenticity to his letter. That Paul was signing his own letters as his way to authenticate that this was him. And this was a way for him to protect the churches from the false teachings that were happening all over the church. Because people got word like, hey, if Paul writes it, they listen to it. So why don't we just forge it and write in Paul's, say it's from Paul. And Paul's like, no, this is my signature and this is my messenger. So if it's not from Epaphras with my signature, then it's not me. If it's from some dude that nobody knows, and it's this signature, that's not me. It has to match. And so here is, is Paul, and he's writing these things that a lot of people are uncomfortable to hear because he writes some pretty like, kind of convicting stuff. And he's sending them with messengers that he trusts to authenticate these letters. And so he also writes, remember my chains. He's in prison. This is really significant because right after that, he writes, grace be with you. What a paradox. Right? He, he's in these terrible conditions. He's bound by chains. And then he writes, grace be with you. How can somebody who's bound by chains, who's sick and elderly in a prison, write grace be with you? that even in the midst of his own suffering, it's incredible that he's able to recognize the grace of God. That even if we're in a place where maybe we feel bound by something, maybe we are suffering, maybe we're not in a great place of health or a great place of finances or a great place in relationships, or maybe just things aren't going the way that we had hoped, hopefully we can still recognize the grace of God. That God initiated that grace. That God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a sign of that grace. That even though you're going through junk, God's grace is there. That he reaches out to you, even in your junk. That he is merciful to you. See, the story isn't about us being in our struggle. The story isn't about Paul being in prison. Just like the story isn't about you being where you're at. That's not the story. The story is not really about us. It's about this gracious, almighty, powerful God who reaches down to 
to wherever you're at, and he can change that story of yours, but it's really all about God. Because you read this, right? The, the Bible is not about Paul being in prison. Sometimes we get so myopic and we think about the story is all about me and my circumstances, my, my events, the, the terrible things that are happening in my life. Think bigger. You have an almighty creator God that intervened in time and space because he loves you that much. Your story is not written in stone. God can change all these things. And it's not to say that you just cast those things aside because Paul writes, remember my chains. It's real. What you're going through is real. The darkness you're experiencing is real. Just don't forget the latter part. Grace is with you. Grace is with you. It's all about God's grace rescuing us from our chains. Because really, ask yourself, what have we done to deserve the grace of God? We haven't done anything. If we were just left off on our own, we would never be set free from our chains. We'd just be bound by those chains. It's he who comes down and sets us free. We wouldn't even know what freedom is without God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, starting in verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He continues on, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Without the grace of God, we're in chains. But if Jesus Christ sets you free, you are free indeed. In Jesus Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are free to live in the will of God. And all we know about the will of God is in his word. We looked at this uh, several weeks ago before our Advent series about the will of God because sometimes people are confused about the will of God because you, you hear this in prayers all the time, right? Lord, may we do your will. And you're, you're trying to figure out God's will. And I don't know what the will of God is. I'm going to share with you what the will of God is. Not as some prophet or anything like that. I'm just going to pull it from the Bible and tell you what the will of God is. For, so for those of you who ask, I don't know what the will of God is. I'm giving you my answer to you before you come talk to me. Right? Like, Pastor, I don't know what the will of God is. I'm like, okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is what I'm going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you anything else. This is what I'm going to tell you. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Without the grace of God, we don't want to do what God wants us to do. We won't want that. What does God want? What's his will? How does he want us to live? It's not a secret. It's not some mystical thing. He's written it. He tells us. Look at 1 
Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Again, if you come to me and ask me, I don't know what the will of God is. Tell me what the will of God is. I don't know what it is for my life. I'm just going to be, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, and to everyone. Rejoice always. Praise without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It just says it right, right there. Last one. This is the will of God for you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That was tough, huh? But it's the will of God. The amazing grace of God for us to live free, to not be in bondage.